Okay, Shirley fans, rise and shine, and don't forget your booties, because it's cold outside. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? Jason, do you have deja vu? I don't know, but I can check in the kitchen. (laughs) Do you think Phil is going to come out and see his shadow today? Poxitani Phil. That's right. Woodchuck chuckers, it's Groundhog Groundhog Day. Day. (laughs) Woohoo! Shirley fans, welcome back to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here with season four. I can't believe we've been doing this for three seasons now. It's like day one. It's just exciting and fun every single time. Jason, I don't know what you're doing later, but can you call in sick? <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am D. Graves, and I am here with my co-host Jason Colvin, the fastest Jack in Johnson County. <laughs> We have a great matchup today to begin Season 4. This is one we've been wrestling with a little bit. Today, this will be Groundhog Day versus Multiplicity. These are both Harold Ramis-directed movies. Yeah, we've got lots of cast members in common. We've got an almost cast member in common. And we can talk about why Groundhog Day was such a monumental success like it was. And Multiplicity definitely fell short. Yeah, we definitely need to talk about that. For sure. I've got some ideas, like small changes that yeah. would make Multiplicity way better. Because it was funny. There's definitely some funny parts. So Yeah, we will definitely get into that. And just as a teaser, ladies and gentlemen, in 1983, March of 1983, almost exactly 40 years ago, Peter Ivers, a young Harvard graduate who had been making the underground scene as what Muddy Waters called was the best blues harp player in the world. He was also a host on a TV show that was kind of a pre-runner for MTV and he was bludgeoned to death in his Skid Row apartment on March 3rd, 1983 and one of the key members of these two movies was immediately a suspect in the murder. I had forgotten about that. We've already talked about that in our Ghostbusters episode. Yeah, it was so, our okay. Ghostbusters episode. So that's the teaser. I will bring you back to that story when we get to multiplicity. You do such a great job of laying the hook, the uh, the bludgeon to death thing. Yeah. I'm on the hook and I've heard the story. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but before we jump into all of the other stuff, we got to say something about our fans. Number one, Shirley fans are the best fans in the world. Number two, we got to give a special shout out to Chris Weber. Yeah, Chris Weber has sent us, over the course of time, three different records, right? Yeah. And so he has sent us the Airplane soundtrack record. Perfect. Which who knew Airplane had a soundtrack? <laughs> right. It's got the Notre Dame fight song on there, among other things. The girls sing in the River Jordan, and it's a super fun record, which Chris sent to us uh, a while back. And then since then, he sent two other records that he found in the record store. K-Tel, Collection of 1983, and it's like... 1983 songs up and down from K-Tel. It's super fun. The K-Tel story in and of itself should be a episode all to its own because that is an incredible story right there. K-Tel Records, 
we will probably find a way to sneak that in. Maybe it'll be a Patreon episode. By the way, thank you to all of our Patreon members who have stood with us through the test of time. We appreciate your support. We couldn't do all that we do without it. Thank you so much, guys. If you're interested in supporting our podcast through Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Shirley Podcast. If you do that, if you become a donator, then we will shout out to you. You become an executive producer. And if you level up, we send you fun, special gifts. But probably the best gift is for any Patreon member, and that is getting to hear our super secret one-hit wonder episodes. D, we have recorded 10 special Patreon episodes now, covering, you know, quote-unquote one-hit wonders of the 80s, 90s, and even 70s, right? So we've done songs like Don't You Forget About Me by The Simple Minds. We've talked about Don't You Want Me by The Human League. That was our latest one. We did September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. We did Video Killed the Radio Star, and it's been a lot of fun. Got a lot of great stuff over there. I think some of our best work on the patreon and it's only five bucks a month and you can get access to all that stuff over there you definitely need to go check it out over there yes 10 special episodes jason's picks are especially special like short but special (laughs) kind of episodes but they're still worth the listen i promise they're kind of like uh, michael keaton number four episodes over there right hey steve (laughs) this episode is going to be number four uh, mariah carey <laughs> okay, so you ready to dive into the creation of these two movies? Yeah. So let's talk about Harold Ramis. He was the director for Groundhog Day. He was the director for Multiplicity. He probably wrote nearly most of both scripts, but let's just back up and get a little picture of who he is. And if you don't know the name Harold Ramis, let me just say Egon Spengler. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That would have worked if you hadn't stopped me. I collect spores, molds, and fungus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Egon 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 Spengler so when Egon was just a young Spengler he was Harold Ramis in Chicago where he was raised his dad owned a food and liquor store raised Jewish went to St. Louis to Washington University to go to school there after school he worked I'm not kidding here he worked in a psych ward for several months worked in a psych ward and he is he is noted as saying this helped me when i moved to hollywood in how to deal with people (laughs) that's hilarious he was like i'm not kidding like legitimately like when you're working with actors you don't know what mental plane they're coming from and so you just got to go okay this guy's not thinking the same way i am i can work with that i I guarantee you he thought about that when he was dealing with bill murray uh yeah Okay. And he dealt with Bill Murray from the beginning, but let's not get ahead of ourselves okay, here. All right. So he went to went to the Washington University in St. Louis, worked at the site ward, came back to Chicago, started teaching inner city kids at a high school there, but then also was doing stuff in like guerrilla TV, like TV TV, and became a joke editor for Playboy magazine. And then he started working for the Second City Improv Group. And so through all of this, you know, he he's teaching, but he's got his love for entertainment and improv and obviously Second City is something that later becomes Second City TV. So he does more TV stuff. He gets asked to come write for Saturday Night Live but doesn't want to do that. Sticks with SCTV and ultimately starts working with Bill Murray and they end up doing their first projects together. Yeah, so Harold Ramis wrote Meatballs, which starred Bill Murray. That came out in 1979. Yep. Ivan Reitman directed Meatballs. Right. 
And if you want a really cool crossover episode, we did a crossover with the guys on the film by uh, one podcast on Ivan Reitman. It was Ghostbusters 2. We kind of dive into this story a little bit. Absolutely. Check out Ghostbusters 2. Ivan Reitman is a fantastic story. I, I loved it going into really that episode. Cool. And I always love doing stuff with Brad and Jeff, so it was perfect. Yeah. In 1980, Harold Ramis gets his first directorial movie, Caddyshack. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that one in our Caddyshack versus Happy Gilmore episode and the craziness that went on there. But Harold Ramis finally is, you know, able to establish himself as the director of a high-quality movie. And then in 1981, he works with Bill Murray again for Stripes. Later on, in 1983, we're talking 40 years ago, he gets Chevy Chase in the movie Vacation. Yeah, we got that one coming up in the future in this season where we're going to compare that one to The Great Outdoors, another comedy classic this featuring... This summer, it's going to be great. Okay, so now, new guy to talk about. We've got a guy named Danny Rubin, right? Danny Noonan? No. You do, <laughs> oh, that's Caddyshack. You do drugs, Danny? <laughs> Every day. What's the problem? <laughs> so, so, Danny was a guy who got his master's degree in film, television, and then, again, went and was teaching high school and realized, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Right. So he moves out to California, is going to try to make his way as a script writer, and he comes up with this script idea after reading an Anne Rice novel. So he is sitting in the movie theater, and he's reading The Vampire Lestat. Why is he Why is he reading in the movie theater? I guess he's by himself and he's bored. <laughs> I, don't, I don't typically bring books to the movie theater. Right. But if you've ever seen the interview with a vampire, mm-hmm. the character that Tom Cruise plays in that is The Vampire Lestat. Yeah. And he's immortal, and he just continues to live forever and ever and ever. And he started to question what life would be like if I were immortal. So that leads him to develop this script. Now, his script, interestingly, it starts in the middle of the story. Like, he's already in the loop. Right. He's in the time loop, and you don't get the you don't get the foundation of him getting there. It's just he's there, and that's how this script starts. And so he shops this around to dozens of production companies, and everybody says the same thing. I love this script. We can't make it. Right. We... <laughs> It's just too hard. But then Harold Ramis gets a hold of the script, and then we get studio money involved because by this time, it's 1993. He has been established now for over a decade as a heavy hitter, and he loves the script, and he loves the fact that it starts in the middle. And he goes to Danny. He's like, I love this. I love that it starts in the middle. We are definitely keeping that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, except that then, of course... Hollywood is what Hollywood is, and one of the studio executives comes in and says, uh, wouldn't the audience like to know how he got there? Yeah. And Harold Ramis is like, I don't know. I mean, I really like that it's in the middle. And she goes, why don't you just write it and just see how it turns out? Just see what, you know, just for funsies. Yeah. And so he writes it, and of course, that becomes the intro for the movie. One of the things we need to talk about in this movie, and I don't want to show my hand particularly early, I think I already have, but they literally make every right decision. Like every time they meet, reach a fork in the road, yeah, everything that they decide makes the movie better. Yeah, it really does. It really does. Because I got to say the intro to the movie is not particularly exciting until the point that he hits his first second day, you know, like right. his first repeat day. And at that point, then it's fascinating. Yeah. Then it's like, what's going on here? <laughs> and we needed to have that moment. But we also... The reason that the intro is important, not because the story is particularly great, but it establishes who Bill Murray's character is, who Phil is. Right. And 
he is the same guy from Scrooge just a few years earlier. We talked about this. He's yeah. Frank Cross, right? Yeah. By the way, Danny Rubin's script didn't start out as funny. No, it was much darker. It was much darker. One of the things that he and Harold Ramis talked about was the suicide attempts. Yeah. Because at some point, when you're stuck in this loop, dark things enter your mind. Absolutely. And this is interesting, and we'll talk about this when we get to kind of the production side of things, but... This is something that follows the three-act structure, but it also follows the five stages of grief, which is really interesting. It's not like any other script before it. Now, this script has become a trope in and of itself. I mean, this this idea has happened over and over again in different iterations, but... This is the original, as far as I can tell. Like, this is the first one where it was, I wake up and everybody else is doing the exact same day, and I'm the only one who knows we already did this. Right. And it's great in that, how many times, I mean, in our 40s now, how many times have you just got up in the morning and thought, God, I feel like I'm doing the exact same thing and have been doing the exact same thing for years now. In our lexicon now, when you're like, ah, I'm just stuck in Groundhog Day. Yeah. We all know what that means. I mean, guys, we're releasing this on Groundhog Day 2023, right? Most people in the world don't know what that holiday is. It is a strictly American holiday, right? <laughs> Puxatani Phil, the groundhog, comes out. If he sees his shadow and gets scared, it means six more weeks of winter. If he doesn't see his shadow, it means that spring is right around the corner. Well, it's six more weeks of winter anyway. It's just some dumb, meaningless ceremony. A bunch of people coming out to worship a rat. <laughs> right? <laughs> I remember when we used to kill a rat, cook him and eat him. <laughs> but the movie itself has taken over the whole idea. Like, I mean, worldwide, even though they don't celebrate Groundhog Day, they know what Groundhog Day is because of this movie. And it's now no longer this... Does the groundhog see a shadow? It is the idea that you have a repeating cycle. You're stuck in a time loop. You're doing the same thing day after day after day. Okay. You know why Danny Rubin chose Groundhog Day to be that day? Tell me. So after he wrote the script, you know, the time loop script, yeah. he's like, oh man, I'm onto something, right? This is a good idea. The time loop. He pulled out his calendar and was like, what's the nearest holiday that hasn't been done? Yeah, right. Boom, February 2nd, Groundhog Day. Boom, that's the reason. That's it. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. He In the script that he wrote, he also had showing at the movie theater was It's a Wonderful Life. To him, uh, the movie that you saw every year, like it was the movie that just kept coming up year after year after year. And so this idea that that would be the one movie that was showing at the theater seemed perfect to him. But when Harold Ramis read the script, instead of this dark kind of morbid comedy that he had it's like a george bailey style story right where he gets to see the world if he wasn't in it and in this scenario we see a same type of idea and that's how harold ramus decides to go with this movie i mean really we're talking about bill murray dropped off in it's a wonderful life yeah kind of yeah. kind of it's just this yeah a very weird paradox yeah that is never explained See, that's the right decision there too, right? Yeah. I know they talked about it because the studio was very concerned. Like, will mm -hmm. the audience go with you on that? Yeah. You know, what they talked about how at one point they thought maybe it would be a curse from somebody. You know, somebody got mad at you and cursed you. Yeah. Or, you know, you're hit on the head or, you know, there's always some sort of magic. What happens? It's never explained. So I'm, I'm going to jump ahead in our normal time sequence and talk about post-production stuff. Okay. But I think it touches on this point in that there is a universal understanding of this epidemic of 
you feel like you're stuck in a time loop because Groundhog Day gets released on a Friday, as you know, normally movies would. And it actually is like a week or so after the actual Groundhog Day. They like release it mid-February, oddly enough. <laughs> no, I don't right. know why they would have tried to get before it, or at least <laughs> on the day. Guys, Shirley Podcast, check it out. All right. Anyway, it comes out on a Friday, and on that Sunday, he gets a call from his writing partner and his producing partner. The partner says, they're picketing your movie in Santa Monica. And he's like, what? what? Why? And he's like, well, they're not against the movie he goes what's going on he's like well it's all of these hasidic jews and they are walking around in circles with signs saying are you living the same day over and over again now i mentioned that harold ramus was raised jewish but this is kind of a jewish thing like in the jewish tradition they start the torah reading the torah on the same day every year read the same verse like every jewish practicing person is reading the same verses on the same day throughout the year and so they they have that repetition and they've got that idea harold ramus's mother-in-law is a zen buddhist like lived in a commune zen buddhist community for like 30 years and when she saw it she's like oh yeah this is totally a buddhist concept right yogis were calling him the christians were calling him saying hey you've got like the catholics were calling saying he's in purgatory this is obviously he hasn't done what's right enough but not what's wrong enough and so he's got to absolve himself and you have this whole in the buddhist tradition you have 10,000 years to renew your spirit right all of it these, speaks to them all all of the and psychoanalysis i mean my gosh i mean it's just it all it all has this communal moral and philosophical relationship he just managed to hit everything and so you don't need to know why because everybody has it as their understanding it's fascinating i know they're thrilled about it yeah but it just magically happened and everybody identifies with it yeah it's crazy okay so let's jump into multiplicity doug i'd like you to meet four i got a lot that guy gave it to me right okay so groundhog day came out in 1993 multiplicity is just three years later 1996 right right and before i get there back to peter ivers yeah okay so Peter Ivers, like I said, Harvard grad, incredible musician on the punk scene underground, seemed to be writing a lot of quality stuff, seemed to be a guy who who was just on the fringes of becoming famous. And then, mysteriously, he is murdered right. in his own apartment. He had gotten, he had broken up with his girlfriend. He moved into this kind of rat-infested apartment next to Skid Row. Like, you know, I heard story, you know, dead prostitute in the trash can kind of deals. Bad place to be right. to begin with, right? And he was the type of guy who just inherently trusted people. But he was this he was the host of this TV show called New Wave Theater. And that show was developed by a guy named Dave Jove. At some point, Peter Ivers tells Dave Jove, hey, I don't want to do this show anymore. And it's not too much longer than that, that Harold Ramis's wife starts calling people because she's a nurse. He hasn't shown up for his appointment. He's got an appointment with her and he hasn't shown up. And this is completely unlike him. And so Harold Ramis's wife is the one who really kind of sets the alarm of, hey, wh- where's Peter? Somebody needs to go check on Peter. Okay. And that's where they find him in his bed, so badly beaten. It looks like it was a gunshot to the head, but it wasn't. He was just beaten this badly, right? Wow. The police botch this 
investigation so much that to this day it is still unsolved. Like they let all of his friends come into the apartment and wander around. Dave Jove literally collects his bloody sheets and takes them out of the apartment and they never get investigated. The cops, because this guy's just living on Skid Row, just thinks it's some vagrant or somebody who he was being nice to who or a drug deal gone bad. They're blowing it off and so they don't really do a significant investigation in this. But Harold Ramis's wife shows up, and when she realizes what has happened, she's absolutely hysterical. And so when they see her reaction, they suspect Harold Ramis for the murder because they think, oh, with her reaction, nobody who wasn't in some sort of romantic right. relationship with Peter Ivers would react this way. And so they suspect Harold Ramis. Of course, he had an alibi. It wasn't him. But interestingly, Dave Jove, when Peter Ivers dies, develops a brand new show called The Top, and that is produced and written by Harold Ramis. Like, you can see how you could go, wow, he kind of took over his spot after he died. He was a <laughs> suspect in the murder. But Harold Ramis, everybody will say, is just the nicest guy in the world. You know, I've heard that, and he seems to be this very warm, jovial, easy-to-get-along-with guy. And we know, we know Bill Murray is a pain in the butt and yep. very difficult. Yeah. Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, after Groundhog Day, keep in mind they made Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters Two. They worked in Chicago. They were working These in Chicago in the seventies, right? right? Like they were fifteen years of close friendship. I saw Harold Ramis's daughter talking about this. She's like, I don't really know what happened, but they were friends when they made the movie, and then when they finished the movie, they weren't friends. And they were not friends all the way until Harold Ramis was on his deathbed about to die. And that's when Bill Murray showed up and they reconciled. They didn't speak for 20 years. It's crazy. It's nuts. And then you get that little tribute in Ghostbusters Afterlife to Harold Ramis. Yeah. Kind of nice. Yep. Okay. So multiplicity. I'm sorry. We we got steered off right there. Harold Ramis, a suspect, but we know it wasn't really him. But... Harold Ramis did know Peter Ivers. Yeah. And Peter Ivers had another close friend who was also close friends with Harold Ramis. Okay. And his name was Douglas Kenny. Doug Kenny. Yes. So all of these guys worked together in various ways. And Douglas Kenny, of course, key member of the Animal House group, key member of Caddyshack, has a very weird death circumstance himself. It's crazy. It is. There's a great documentary out there on it. But Harold Ramis says, okay, I'm going to go back to one of my, one of the National Lampoon stories that I've seen, and I'm going to make the main character's name Doug Kenny. Rule number two. No more Dougs. That's it. This is plenty, I think. This I'm going to call leads yeah, first thing in the morning. We're out of the Doug making business altogether. That's really cool. Yeah. By the way, if you don't know who Doug Kenny is, mm-hmm. in Animal House, he's got a real prominent, real famous, real quotable line. It's the guy who's like, well, what the hell are we supposed to do, you moron? That's Doug Kenny. Yeah. He died in Hawaii under very mysterious circumstances. Yeah. They just found his body at the bottom of a cliff. I'm trying to remember the quote. I think it was something like, uh, I think, and it may have been Harold Ramis that said this, I think Doug fell when he was looking for a place to jump off. <laughs> I think that's I think that's basically where where they got with that one. But another guy that was close with Doug Kinney was an actor in National Lampoon Animal House with Doug Kinney and also a writer on the National Lampoon was a guy named Chris Miller. And just to tell you how close he is, his nickname when he was in college was Pinto. Okay. 
Interesting. Yeah, there you go. He would go on and write several other things. He was a writer on Square Pegs, the series with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. But he wrote a story in 1993 in the National Lampoon that was called Multiplicity. And it was this same story that Harold Ramis decided to take and make into a full movie. And once again, he probably wrote 40% of the script, but because of the rules, if you're the director, you can't have writing credit unless you write 50% or more. So he is not listed as a writer on this movie, but he probably is, right? Right. But Chris Miller is the guy who penned the original story. Now, I would say this. I didn't realize it before, but multiplicity is a psychological term as well. Do you know what it means? Ready for this? Multiple personalities? It is a psychological phenomenon in which a body can feature multiple distinct or overlapping consciousnesses, each with their own degree of individuality. So. Okay. Then he takes this 1993 story and it just so happens, just knowing that when filming had to take place and how long editing takes place, They've got this plan to release this movie in 1996. Well, do you know what else happened in 1996? The Summer Olympics. Not where I was going. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what else happened in 1996? No, what? They cloned Dolly the Sheep. Oh, yeah. Okay, So everybody remember. I mean, the cloning science has been around for over 100 years, but 1996 was a pivotal moment when Dolly the Sheep was cloned and everybody started asking questions. Mm -hmm. Dolly the Sheep. Yeah. Okay. So you've got Michael Douglas, A-list, incredible actor, right? Michael Douglas? Okay. That's his real name. I always do that. So, So you've got Michael Keaton. Are we hey. talking about romancing the stone here or what? <laughs> you got Michael Keaton. You've got Annie McDowell, who had, you know, she'd come off of Groundhog Day, which is a huge success. You've got strong investment behind it. You've got the cinematographer from Ghostbusters and some of the other great movies. Right, right. You've got the special effects guys mm. from Ghostbusters and Star Wars working on these, you know, green screen where we're getting different versions of Doug Kenny and all the shots. It looks like a movie that has to be a success, like right? Like a surefire. It, I mean, and it comes out the same time as the cloning news blows up. It doesn't make any sense. I th- Did you see this in theaters? No, I saw this. I This is interesting. I did not see this movie until two days ago. I have never had never seen this movie until two days ago. Oh, my gosh. I saw this in the theaters, okay? Yeah, yeah. So, 96 wasn't even a strong movie year. Right? No, not a lot of competition. Okay, here are the movies of 96. I mean, and I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel for these, okay? <laughs> so we're talking about Twister yeah. and Mission Impossible, yeah. The Rock, The Cable Guy, The Nutty Professor, Striptease. These are the best movies of 1996. Independence Day. I mean, these are not bad movies, but they're the best. Yes. Like, this is. these are second best movies to any good year, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, The Rock is great, you know, and Independence Day is kind of fun, but... Yeah. These are not... It's not like Jurassic... Like 94 or something like that. Right. But Multiplicity, with a budget of $45 million, grossed $21 million it's globally. embarrassing. I don't get it. I don't either. They talked about how they blamed it on the Summer Olympics. Yeah. The Summer Olympics? Um, all of the other movies had the Summer Olympics to compete with against as well. That's not a reason, no. Seems like Ghostbusters did all right in 84, right? <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> yes, yes, it did. That's hilarious. The question is, if you saw the movie back then, do you still love it? 
Like, did you did you enjoy it back when you saw it? Yes. And have you seen it multiple times? Since I then? saw this movie in the theater, and I laughed my rear off. Okay. At, there are there are definitely funny parts. Yeah. Of course, I was in my twenties, mm-hmm. and now as a you know mid forties guy, I, I identify a little bit more with Doug Kinney about his everything in life being an emergency, and he's got to yeah. be here, 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 and here. Yeah. And I certainly identify with that. But this time around, I felt like he's just a little bit more of a jerk. You know, he just didn't appreciate his family and was angry all the time. And I don't know. Michael Keaton is a fantastic actor. I can't figure out what it is about this movie. I know that people who saw it back in the 90s still... Like I talked to Arlen and he was like, oh yeah, that's just one of those movies that we just go to in my family and we just watch it and it's It's just fun, right? It's a Christmas vacation type of thing for a whole lot of people. But for me, having never seen it, I was watching it and there was a lot of, it was a lot of, okay, let's, let's get this going. Let's have something happen here. And I had some laugh out loud moments, but I was at the beginning, I was like you, I was completely identifying it. I was, I was like, yeah, I I hear you. I got to do, I got to take care of this. Dad's got to take care of this. Dad's got to take care of this. Dad's got to take care of this. Who's going to take care of dad, right? Like, there's my job first, then my family, and I'm like a distant third, right? (laughs) Bringing up the rear. Right. So with me, it's probably family first, job second, and I'm still a distant third. So I identify with it, right? right? I'm like strongly identifying, but it's not like making me warm and fuzzy. It's just... Okay, I've got a simple solution to making Multiplicity a better movie. Okay. You ready for this? Yeah, hit me with it. Okay, so here's the uh, kind of a list of sins that Doug Kinney, Michael Keaton's character, makes in this movie, okay? Yeah, yeah. So he clones himself, obviously, yep, right. without his wife's permission or even knowledge. <laughs> right. Whatever that amounts to, that, that dollar amount, he chings that three or four times, yeah. right? Yeah. He also, you know, when number two comes along, he gives up his family. They have the same consciousness, the same everything, the same experiences. And number two is like, yeah, fine. You keep the family and you keep the wife. And He's taking care of number one and he's taking care of number two so that he can get after taking care of number three himself. <laughs> yeah. And then they all, of course, they all sleep with his wife without her knowledge. This mm. is terribly wrong. Yeah. Right? That was one of the funnier parts of the it movie, was, though. It was funny. It was funny. <laughs> it was funnier part of the movie. The, the thing is, is that she doesn't know what's going on. Right. And that's the problem. Right. That is what's different in Groundhog Day. Bill Murray is trying to bring her along and say, listen, I've got this problem, and can you help me with it? Yeah. And in Multiplicity, he just lies to her the entire time. Yeah, that's true. So here's my thing. Okay, they needed to have some moment in the movie uh-huh. where they enlighten her. Yeah. Okay? So here's what I've been dealing with. Hey, here's number two, here's number three, here's number four. And the oh my gosh freakout scene. And then here's how you fix it all. You have this great dramatic moment where she is brought into the, the problem and they solve the problem by, get this, cloning her. And then you got pears. <laughs> and then they go happily ever after with their cloned pair. They go start their own commune, all eight of them. <laughs> if they, I mean, they didn't have any scruples about these four guys. Oh they gosh. clone her. They all get married and they start a pizza place in Florida. And that's how you wrap it all up. And yeah. everybody feels good because she's in on it. They didn't lie to her the entire time. They just treat her like crap the entire movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, let's jump back to that because that makes me think of something else. Let's jump back to Groundhog Day. Okay. And we'll I'll share this story with you and then we can jump into casting. Okay. okay? Yeah. Then put your little hand in mine. There ain't no hill or mountain we 
Okay, Shirley fans, rise and shine, and don't forget your booties, because it's cold outside. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? Jason, do you have deja vu? I don't know, but I can check in the kitchen. (laughs) Do you think Phil is going to come out and see his shadow today? Poxitani Phil. That's right. Woodchuck chuckers, it's Groundhog Day! Day. (laughs) Woohoo! All right, so in Groundhog Day, as we mentioned before, Danny Rubin's original script had it starting in the middle, right? Yes. And it ends the same. Like, it ends the same, and he wakes up, and it's a new day. It's February 3rd, right? Uh But, you know, keep in mind, this was the night that she spent the night with him, right? And in Danny Rubin's script, the way that it played out was... He wakes up, he realizes it's a new day, he's ecstatic, he's so excited, and he's talking to her, and she just kind of seems lukewarm and just kind of... Right. Duh, this... uh, uh." And it turns out she's stuck in the time loop on February 3rd. I think that's genius, right? (laughs) It's absolutely great. Now, I understand why you want the Hollywood ending, right? You want him to walk off into the snow set happily ever after, but... That is a brilliant end. I guess I just got to say that is freaking brilliant. Just on a side note, I care less about Rita's time loop. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen Ned Ryerson get (laughs) caught in a time loop, right? Yeah. Yes. That would have been hilarious. So, okay. So casting on Groundhog Day. Yeah. So the main character, Phil, Phil Connors. Yeah. Tony Phil. They gave the part, of course, to Bill Murray. Yes. But they considered a group of Hollywood actors, all of which I think would have been great. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're talking Steve Martin. We're talking Chevy Chase, Kevin Klein, and then Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was their first offer. He turned it down. Tom Hanks turned it down. Yeah. You know who else they offered it to? Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. And he also turned it down. He turned it down because he didn't understand the story. Right. And here's... This is this... <laughs> This is how you can't, you know, the one of those you can't win for losing things. He turns down this script, and then when he sees how well Groundhog Day goes, he's like, oh, here's another opportunity. <laughs> got multiplicity. got the same leading lady. I got the same director. I've got several cast members. Kind of a the sci-fi same. thing. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Bet on the wrong horse again, oh, buddy. Oh, that stinks. That stinks. So, okay. So, Bill Murray gets offered the part, or, you know. Bill Murray takes apart Harold Ramis, Bill Murray. It's a perfect marriage. Sure. And he's great in this, right? Oh, yeah. He's, you know, the angry Phil is spot on. The goofy Phil, the confused, all that stuff works perfectly. Okay? This is this is the Bill Murray of the Bill Murrayist, right? This is, <laughs> if, if I had to pick the, the Bill Murray trilogy where he is most Bill Murray, it is the consecutive Scrooged, What About Bob, and Groundhog Day. That is a dang. That is a, that's good I mean, right there because he's basically the same guy in Scrooged and Groundhog Day, but he's still himself and goofy and obnoxious in a different way. And what about Bob? We got to do what about Bob soon? Absolutely. Yeah. We didn't even really talk about the fact that the last episode from season three that we just finished, yeah, was Scrooge versus Christmas Vacation. Yeah. So the part of Rita goes to Andy McDowell. Yes. Did you hear who they wanted for this part? This is why I depend upon you. I do not look at casting because I know that you're going to tell me these things. I thought this was fascinating. Okay. So they hired Andy McDowell, who is 
sweet and genuine and cute. A great she, little Southern South Carolina she's accent. She's got that Southern accent and she just is so sweet and nice that we all love her. And at times in the movie, we don't know really whether Phil deserves her or not. And we right. certainly don't want him just to love her and leave her. Right. As far as save the cat moments go, you yeah. don't have one for Bill Murray. You don't have one for Phil okay. on this one, right? Yeah. He, he is not lovable at the beginning. Right. Bill Murray is almost unavoidably likable. Right. But it's Rita who has the kind of save the cat moment because when you get introduced to her, she's playing with the green screen and like looking at her own floating head and floating hands because she's got the blue top on. Yeah. In that moment, her just being kind of innocent and silly, you fall in love with her right then, which is exactly what you need. Yeah. So here's who they wanted for that. (sighs) Yeah. Tori Amos. I heard that. How about that? I mean, they've got a similar look, but I mean, can, has Tori Amos been in anything? Can she Not act? that I know I of. I don't know. I mean, she's cute, but I, yeah, this girl has to be lovable. There's something about Andy McDowell's face that is, I mean, it's not, it's not the kind of classic Hollywood leading lady beautiful, but it's, her face is amazing. It glows. Yeah. It's just, she's a very, very attractive lady it's i can't really put my finger on it yeah because she's not hollywood gorgeous mm-hmm. but she just something about her makes my teeth hurt right? yeah <laughs> sugary sweet <laughs> okay and then you also have chris elliott as the cameraman right? okay, he's so t- larry right tell me, tell me what you think about chris elliott i think he's perfect as the goofball can't get a lady at the bachelor's auction two bits you know he is the most, like, I just can't understand his success <laughs> at all. I couldn't understand it back then. Like, I have never seen really? him in anything that I thought he was believable or funny or anything. What? I mean, the top, the best performance that he has is in There's Something About Mary. And even that one. Yeah. Even then, he's just, it's not good. It's just, I just can't figure out his fame at all. Their interesting connection there is Chris Elliott made his fame on the David Letterman show as kind of one of those side bit guys. Right. And Letterman, very first guest, very first show, Bill Murray. Oh, that's good. Good yeah. call there. Yeah. By the way, Chris Elliott in The Abyss. You know, I'm a James Cameron guy. Was he in that? He's in The Abyss, oh, and man. he is a semi-serious character, and he's fantastic. Okay. He well, nails it. All right. all right. Okay. Take your word for it. You also have Brian Doyle Murray uh-huh. as Buster Green. He's like the the guy who handles the you know the the groundhog on the day. Yeah, he's the guy in the he top hat. He knocks on the yeah. And we are pretty confident he's also the guy on the radio. We, yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think he's one of the guys on the radio. And this one, I mean, that one I kind of got, but this one you said just before we started recording, and I think you're right. I haven't checked it out or anything, and I don't even know if it's available out there. But tell me who you think the second guy I is. I think the other guy is Stephen Tobolowsky. Ned? <laughs> Ned? Ned the head? Need a nose, Ned? Ned? Bing! Ryerson! <laughs> Phil? Hey, Phil? Phil? Phil Connors? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for watching. Hey, hey. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me, because I sure as heck fire remember you. Not a chance. <laughs> Ned! Ryerson! Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High. Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Ned Ryerson got the shingles real bad senior year, almost didn't graduate. Bing! 
again. Ned Ryerson, I dated your sister Mary Pat a couple times till you told me not to anymore. Well? Ned Ryerson? Bing! Bing! <laughs> Stephen Tobolowsky steals the show with Bill Murray in the same scene. I mean, this movie would not be the same movie without Ned Ryerson's part, right? Stephen Tobolowsky... He gets this part, and you told me, tell me the story about how he gets the, how he gets hired. Okay, so he's in this movie. He's shooting this movie in Paris. Okay. California. <laughs> okay. Paris, California, yeah, right? Yeah. And he, it's one of those weird deals where he said this never happens, but he is put like in the quality inn with another actor, and it's like they're bunkmates. Okay. Like summer camp. Like they're sleeping in the same room. You know, there's your bed. Here's my bed. And he said at night they would just kind of lay there with the lights out and just kind of talk. Okay. Just like you do in summer camp. Right. So he became friends with this guy named Kurt Fuller who's in this movie called Calendar Girl. Okay. And it's kind of the movie he shot before Groundhog Day. Okay. 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 So one day he had a day off and he went down. He had been contacted by Harold Ramis to audition for the part of Ned Ryerson. Right. So he goes down to the audition and he he tells him, "Hey, okay, brace yourself. I'm gonna go all in on this, right?" Yeah. His and quote. His quote was, "You may have to scrape me off the walls with a spatula." <laughs> <laughs> he said he even like examined Harold Ramis's zipper, right? <laughs> well, that's what you told me. You like he adjusted his zipper. Yeah, he's doing the bit, right? <laughs> you got your zipper all the way up there. Hey, you know what? You need more life insurance, right? So he did this fantastic audition, yeah, right? Yeah. And so he goes back the next night. Of course, he goes back to the Quality Inn, and he's with his buddy, Kurt Fuller. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting there, and this is after the audition, and Kurt Fuller says, so, do you have anything coming up? Stephen Tobolowsky's like, every actor hates to hear, yes, I do, right? Like, I got stuff coming, uh-huh. because it's always hard to get stuff. Yeah. And so he's just laying there, and he's like, no. <laughs> nope, nothing coming, right? Right. And so he says, what about you? And so Kurt Fuller says, yeah, I've got this part that was written just for me. It's in the Harold Ramis movie called Groundhog Day, and I'm playing Ned Ryerson. Shut up. Yeah, so he's sitting there, and he's like, oh, my gosh. He's like dying. He's like, because why did they call me if you already been hired? And he's like, so I didn't say anything. I couldn't tell him the truth, right? Uh-huh. And besides, he didn't know if he got the part. Right. So, like, a couple days later, he realizes, I got this part. I got the part of Ned Ryerson. I stole it from this guy. From his bunkmate. From his bunkmate. Uh Uh-huh. And, of course, they call Kurt Fuller and say, you're out. And he said, well, who got it? And he says, Stephen Tobolowsky. Oh, no. And he's furious with him. Yeah. His bunkmate. What are the odds, right? Right. So here's the deal. At the premiere, Stephen Tobolowsky goes to the movie. Andy McDowell is his date because she doesn't want... A million guys to hit on her, so she hangs out with him. Okay. And he protects her or whatever. Yeah. Kurt Fuller comes down right to him, like directly walks up to him, is like, I'm sitting next to you and we're gonna watch this together. <laughs> and Stephen told us he's like, Crap, I, I hope I'm good, you know, like uh-huh, I hope this uh-huh. is really good. Yeah. And so they watch it, he doesn't say anything. When they walk out, the guy says, I'm still mad you stole that. He goes, but at least you did a good job. That is great. And he's, Steve Toblaski has probably played that same type of guy as just the, you know, that side character in so many different things. 
Um, if we have any Glee fans out there, <laughs> there's an episode that has Josh Groban in it. Okay. And Stephen Tobolowsky plays this like he's a member of a barbershop quartet kind of deal. <laughs> and he is also like an obsessive fan of Josh Groban. And so my kids routinely, when they don't like something that is is being said, they'll they'll say this. And this is a quote from Stephen Tobolowsky in this Glee episode. He's talking about... Josh Groban is going to be there. And one of the other barbershop quartet guys is like, who's Josh Groban? He's like, who's Josh Groban? Kill yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, Yeah. So that's 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 a routine line from here. And and Arlen Bullard, our, our my dear friend and one of our listeners, every time that this movie comes up, we'll we're like, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> I enjoy him in the movie Sneakers. Have you ever seen Sneakers? Uh, in the theater back in the 90s. Oh yeah. my gosh. So it's a great movie. Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix, Sidney yeah. Poitier. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of the early computer hacker movie. Right. Well, Stephen Tobolowsky's character is the guy they're trying to steal the password for to get in. He uses his voice as a passport and they're trying to get him to say the word passport. Uh, anyway, he's really good in sneakers as well. Now, obviously, like you said, you got Brian Doyle Murray in there. Yes. There are some parts that you may not recognize the actor, or you didn't recognize him back then, but now on the rewatch, you'll go, oh my gosh. And one of those is Mr. Michael Shannon as young high school Fred. That's so... Uh, that blew my mind, right? And, and if and if you don't remember the scene, I'll give you the line. WrestleMania! <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure he tapped into that same acting vibe when he said, I will find him! I will find him! <laughs> the guy who plays General Zod in Man of Steel is a teen goober in this movie. Absolute goober. Overacting over the top. I will find him! But Mr. Michael Shannon, yeah, you've got... You've got several guys who you know from movies, like the guy from The Burbs is one of the drunk guys that he hangs out with. That's true. He's also in Die Hard. He's the guy who shuts down the power grid in Die Hard. Yeah, Central? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is Walt uh, down at Nakatomi. Uh, say, listen, uh, would it be possible for you to turn off uh, Grid 212? Are you crazy? Maybe I should call him. Yeah, yeah. But they all, a lot of these guys go on, and we'll jump into casting now for Multiplicity. Yeah. They're in Multiplicity as well. Right. For Multiplicity, you've got Brian Doyle Murray again. Yeah. Uh, he's the boat captain, right? Yes. <laughs> and you, his, is it girlfriend or daughter? I can't even tell what she's supposed to be, but that's a young Julie Bowen. She was a girlfriend of Happy Gilmore, yes. free, modern family, all of that stuff. Yes. Um, beautiful lady, and so, uh, she's just so cute back then. But then you've also got the lady who's the waitress in Groundhog Day is the uh, the lady when he comes to take the pictures, comes to take the ballerina pictures. She's the receptionist. She's like, yeah, we did you not get the call? We rescheduled that to next week. And he's like, no, you're taking the pictures today. She's like, no, we're taking them next week. He's like, no, you're taking them. Right. Find a photographer. Right. Yeah. So same actors there. So you got a lot of crossover. And then you have some crossover from Ghostbusters 2. Yes. So you've got the actor Harris Eulen, and he plays Dr. Leeds in Multiplicity. Right. He plays the judge at the beginning of Ghostbusters 2, who's like banging the gavel, going to sentence the Ghostbusters to like 20 years hard labor. Yeah. 
and then of course the ghosts pop out. Right. He also was on an episode of Frasier. I always remember him from this. He was a mob boss on Frasier. Oh, okay. Somebody should do a podcast on Frasier. I, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> also, and- you've got Richard Masser. He's like Doug's boss in Multiplicity. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. The guy from uh, The Thing. Yes. Yeah. The guy who handles the dogs yep. in The Thing. Yeah. Of course, he gets shot by Kurt Russell like 20 minutes into the movie, but... I guess he he wasn't an alien. I guess that makes you guilty of murder. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, he's totally wasted in multiplicity. Right. And then, of course, you've still got Andy McDowell, same female lead in this one, and you've got Glenn Shaddix. Oh, yes. I know you're looking confused right now. You remember Beetlejuice? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The fat, sort of effeminate guy who's like the real estate guy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or art dealer or whatever he is. He's the building inspector in Multiplicity. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Both, of course, with Michael Keaton in them. You also have Eugene freaking Levy. Vic! Vic! The guy who is habitually late and habitually, like, (laughs) his very first scene is... What, you don't like the job? Oh, I think you're doing a great job. It's the wrong driveway. <laughs> right. So his, the name of his company is Dependable Concrete. Right. He's not dependable at all. And then dependable is spelled D-E-P-E-N-D-I-B-L-E. He spells the word wrong <laughs> in his company name on his truck. Oh, my gosh. You yeah. got to have, if you're if you're hurting for comedy a little bit, you got to throw Eugene Levy in there and you're going to be in good shape. They waste him as well. Could have been, could have been more useful for sure. By the way, you also, I kind of, I don't know the guy's name. Yeah. But he plays Q in Star Trek Next Generation. Oh, right, right, as the kind it's of like obnoxious his rival. partner. Yeah. yeah, and he puts him in the, um, the port- when he goes into the porty potty he has the forklift come and take it away. Yeah, that's I, right. I know somebody who actually did that to somebody. Not to use a forklift, but like locked a guy in the porta potty and then turned it over. Not cool. No, he had it coming, though. Same, <laughs> same as Q. Okay, then funny. <laughs> Q. And then, if we can't forget... And Cusack, the lesser-known Cusack sibling. I, not Joan, not John. Right. Yeah. There I, is a there is a third Cusack sibling, and her name is Anne. Who does she play? She's like the love interest for number two, right? He's, he's in the, he's in the <laughs> she, restaurant She's with. the girl at the restaurant? Yes. Yeah. Who he okay. works with, who he flirts with, and all that other stuff. Yes. So I watched a behind-the-scenes making of thing where she was narrating. Yeah. And I'm looking at her, I'm going... That looks like Joan Cusack, but that's not Joan Cusack. That's exactly... You were right on both counts. Yes! <laughs> Who the heck is Ann Cusack? Yeah, that's right. Yep. By the way, the restaurant scene where number two and number one see each other and with different girls, yeah. hilarious. Yeah. I laughed my butt off in the movie theater at that scene. Yeah. Then they get switched. Great comedy. Fun times. Good. Good. Okay, so that does it for casting. Guys... Come back next week, and we are going to talk about production, reception, all of those wonderful things. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure and hit that follow button. Be sure and hit that subscribe button so you catch all of the fascinating stories next week. That's right. Thank you for joining us on Groundhog Day. (laughs) 